Welcome back to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm your host, Carol, and joining us today is Benedict Evans, an independent analyst and venture partner at both Mosaic Ventures and Entrepreneur First, and a former partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Welcome on to the show, Benedict. Hello. I should say welcome back because you were actually a guest on episode 43 of Analyze Asia way back in July 2015. That's more than five years ago. And I checked the conversation was actually recorded via a Skype call. And you talked about the future being all things mobile. And here we are, you know, in the future. Now, you were a partner at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, or A16Z, which is a very renowned venture capital firm, you know, whose exits include Facebook, Pinterest, Lyft, Instagram, and many, many more. So what are some of, you know, the key takeaways that you can share from that experience? Or, you know, what is the secret sauce to A16Z's success, if you will? I don't think I'd surprise anybody if I said that Silicon Valley is the global cluster for creating software. And so there is a combination of capital, talent, particularly talent at every level. So it's not kind of the grunts or the founder or the people at the top. It's all the people at the middle who are the middle managers who run a sales team five times and access to customers. There's also, I would think, something intangible, there's sort of two intangible things. One of them is the sort of the atmosphere of possibility, the sense that everybody thinks, of course, you're going to create a company and of course, you're creating great stuff. The other is the sense of what success looks like. You know, what is your peer group and what is the thing that everyone measures themselves against and in Silicon Valley, that's Apple and Google and Facebook and Oracle and Salesforce and a whole bunch of other very successful companies. I often describe it as being a bit like in a, in a university town. You're going to do a PhD? Well, of course you're going to do a PhD. Three people in this room have done PhDs. The world expert is sitting next to you. So, you know, it creates that sense of possibility. The downside, perhaps, is you're also very isolated. You know, it's as though you're in a college town where the nearest city is seven hours away by plane. You know, it's a provincial American town. There's not a lot else going on. You know, the nearest art galleries are in Los Angeles. There's nobody working on anything else. You, If you're in New York or Singapore or London, you know, you'll go to a dinner party and there will be people in your industry. But, you know, if you're, if you're a banker and you go to a dinner party in New York, there'll be lawyers there. There'll be other people there. There may not be any artists, but there will at least be people who aren't bankers. And, you know, if you're you know, advertising, there'll be people in music and there'll be people in TV. In Silicon Valley, everybody is in tech that you will meet socially. And so that that is in some senses, it's both very good and very bad. And you have left Silicon Valley recently. You have moved back to the United Kingdom. So what have you been up to since then? So, well, there's a way I'd have answered that question in February and the way way I answer that question now. I'm doing a bunch of different things. So I'm spending some time with Mosaic, which is an early stage fund. I'm spending some time with Entrepreneur First, which is a sort of a a frontier technology incubator. I'm talking to a bunch of larger scale investors around developments in the market, and I'm doing a bunch of freelance projects. I have a newsletter that has 150,000 subscribers. So I'm sort of exploring things I can do with that. I launched a paid version a month ago. And, you know, exploring other things, that, um, ways that I can help people. Yes, I was actually going to mention the uh, newsletter that you put out, which has 150,000 subscribers. That's amazing. Um, you also publish a lot of essays on all things tech on your website as well. Recently, I see that you've written quite lengthy articles about, you know, regulation of technology and, of course, the impact of COVID and much more, which are the topics that we are going to um, talk about today as well. So let me start with the first topic of you know, regulating technology. So we know 
that last month, the CEOs of Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apples, um, they have all testified before Congress right, to defend their companies against antitrust allegations, etc. What do you think the U.S. regulators have gotten right or wrong about these big tech companies and insisting that the only way is to, quote unquote, break them up? I know you've written extensively on this and it's not something that uh, can be explained easily, but however you can um, explain it to our listeners. So there's a couple of things here. I mean, the first issue, I think, is that until very recently, technology was actually quite a small industry. It was very interesting and exciting, and Bill Gates was on every magazine cover. But when Bill Gates was on every magazine cover, Microsoft's actual business was selling accounting tools to big companies. And software, technology, even the internet were not actually an important part of most people's lives. And in the last 10 years, probably really even the last five years, that fundamentally changed. All of these things became systemically important to society in all sorts of ways. My favorite statistic for me is that in 2017, 40% of new relationships in the USA started online. So 40% of people met their partner into who met their partner in 2017 met them online. And so this stuff has gone from being exciting, but basically peripheral. People would say, well, I'm not computer literate. You know, and people would say, well, let's get some computer, that's all computer geeks are interested in, to being a basic part of everybody's life. And that means that, and when something becomes part of society in that way, all of society's problems get expressed in it. And so we connected everybody and that meant we connected all the bad people and more importantly, we connected all of our own worst instincts. And any problem that was already there also becomes much more important because now it affects everybody instead of just affecting, you know, a few people. So, you know, there were Nazis on Usenet in the early 1990s, but you know, it only affected people on Usenet. It wasn't a problem. It didn't affect elections. And so for a whole bunch of reasons, technology has sort of graduated into being something that gets regulated in the same way that you could say, like, airlines or cars or electricity or indeed like you know mass produced food gets regulated because it's big and important and it's part of everyone's lives and there are things that can go wrong so i think that's sort of the first thing to think about the second thing is that i think there's a lot of displacement and wishful thinking and a rushing for easy solutions and a moral panic around this and i think the idea that you can solve all of these problems by breaking these companies up is sort of part of that and coming from the uk break them up reminds me a lot of brexit now it sounds simple break them up yeah until you ask some questions like well what into what and what problems would you actually be solving by doing that and you know the analogy that i used in in, in one of those essays was it's a little bit like saying that you can solve all the problems that come from cars by breaking up gm and ford and it may well be that GM and Ford have market dominance, and it may well be that they're abusing that market dominance, but that's not how you get people to wear seatbelts. And it's not how you solve parking, and it's not how you solve emissions, nor is it how you replace the city centre roads with cycle lanes. When you can go to GM and say parking is a terrible problem, what are you going to do about it? And they would say, well, yes, it is a terrible problem, but that's not a mechanical engineering problem. Criminals use cars. You should make that stop. Well, we agree, but we're not quite sure what we can do about that. I mean, we could put better locks on the door, yes, but like if the criminal owns the car, like there's nothing we can do about it. And so I think we kind of need to get to a sense of understanding that, well, some things are antitrust problems, some things are regulation problems, some things ref uh, reflect some other problem in society and they're not really a technology problem, they're some other kind of problem. Like, are Uber and Lyft drivers employees? Well, you can argue about that, but that's not a technology question. That's or, or nor indeed an antitrust question. That's an employment law question. And so I think where we need to get to is an understanding of that complexity and an understanding that you kind of need to solve problems one at a time and that those problems probably come with a trade-off. 
and probably aren't just happening because there's somebody in Silicon Valley who's an evil 20-year-old who doesn't understand the world. And are there examples that uh, we can, or lessons that we can draw from when it comes to breaking up big companies uh, historically? Like uh, you, you've written about Standard Oil and other utility companies back in the days? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the kind of totemic thing that particularly American antitrust people tend to talk about is Standard Oil. And I think there is a sort of a tendency for the, these people to, to, it's like the joke about the man with a hammer who thinks that everything is a nail, everything must be an antitrust problem, or must, everything must be a breakup problem. And I think a much more useful example is to look at AT&T and indeed to look at the proposal to break up Microsoft. And so AT&T was this national monopoly of, of telephones in America. And it was split apart into, I think, seven regional monopolies, seven regional operating companies, plus long distance, plus a telecoms equipment company. And the consequence of this was, you now you had competition in long distance, which at the time was very expensive. And now other telecoms equipment companies could compete because there was more than one customer and the customer didn't own the equipment company. But if you were a consumer who lived in New York or Miami or LA, there was still a monopoly phone company. It was just a different one in different parts of the country. And there's a sort of a basic law of physics reason for that, which is that local access telephone networks are a natural monopoly, you know, laying, stringing pieces of copper down down the street is expensive and difficult and it's extremely hard to justify the cost of laying two networks it's kind of it's not quite as hard as laying two gas networks or two water networks but it's almost there and yes you have cable networks as well but that's kind of that you achieve that by building a different completely different kind of product and so you can't like break up the phone network that runs down your street you can't kind of split the copper into two and give half to one company and half to another and even if you did that would just mean that like your side of the street had a monopoly and the other side of the street had a monopoly and you still wouldn't actually have solved the problem so what you do instead is you regulate the company and so you create carrier pre-selection you create options to um, you create wholesale access options in particular with broadband you have local loop unbundling where you don't sell the copper that goes from the exchange to the home but you let different companies connect their equipment to the copper in the telephone exchange and in fact you do that on multiple levels so you can physically put your own what we call d-slams into the boxes in, into the telephone exchange connected to the copper or you can get wholesale access to the data or you can you know there are sort of multiple layers of disaggregation and so you identify a point at which you actually can insert competition on some sort of reasonably economic basis and you mandate the wholesale pricing for that something similar happened with roaming prices we obviously you can have multiple mobile phone networks you know, clearly we do in a way that's different from having local copper access networks but it's very difficult for you to choose what roaming rate you would get when you go abroad and so in particular the eu regulated roaming prices so instead you know there were all these horror stories where people would go on holiday and they would turn their phone on and they'd open the internet and they'd come home and they'd get a bill ten thousand euros and so that got regulated and now that doesn't happen and very recently we've had something in the eu with credit cards which is a kind of an interesting competition question where, you know, when you, as you, I'm sure most people on this podcast will know, when you swipe your credit card, the merchant pays a fee to the credit card provider. The merchant can't decide, well, we're just not going to have Visa and MasterCard. This is why they, incidentally, people say they don't take American Express because American Express was more expensive. But they can't just not take credit cards and they can't tell you not to use a credit card. So the merchant was kind of stuck paying a couple of percent in interchange fee with no choice. And the EU mandated to change that and I think the cap is now half a percent which incidentally means that Europeans now now don't get loyalty points because that's where the credit card loyalty loyalty rewards are coming from and so I think when you look at something like the mechanics of search 
or the interchange of data between social networks, or the whole extremely complicated advertising technology, what's called ad tech stack. There are some things within that where you can do a structural separation, but there are many more where that doesn't really make any kind of sense. And if you want to deal with market abuse, or even if there isn't market abuse, there's just a monopoly. So even if you have a monopolist that isn't doing anything illegal, you can still decide, we think we need to insert more competition into this. And, you know, it's kind of back to my GM point. Yes, you apply it trust to the car industry but that doesn't solve city center parking in bangkok and so there are other places there are other kinds of problem as well understood and in your essays and presentation you also talk a lot about regulatory competition when i think about things being regulated immediately because i'm living in china right now i think about the, the tiktok case and i feel like that would be a great example of regulatory competition i feel like it's a clash of you know political ideas you know fundamental values and of course regulations what, what's your take on the on the tiktok issue there's a regulatory competition question and then there's a tiktok question which is kind of actually i think it's kind of a separate point so i can kind of maybe talk about each of those the first of them is that you know we've always had regulated industry we've had regulated industries for 100 to 200 years but by and large that happened in different countries and that wasn't really a problem because to begin with most of the companies only really operated in one country and then in secondly you know the regulatory objectives were pretty similar and it was relatively straightforward to harmonize them i mean a big part of the eu project was giving having the regulation all work sort of in the same way but there were not kind of great kind of cultural ideological differences in how you regulate the list of ingredients on the back of a packet of food for example in the internet of course we have a global medium and because the network effects tend to be global we have global platforms and so facebook or instagram or youtube operate in every in lots of different countries and yet those countries may have very different attitudes to what you should be able to do they particularly have different attitudes to what kinds of speech are accept- socially acceptable and you're that you're going to allow different attitudes for sort of basic things like how libel law works different attitudes to how competition policy should work and so you get into this question well the uk or the eu want to create rules on taking down harmful content how do they apply that to an american company And the answer in the past was, well, it was hard and it was difficult and there wasn't really any way that you could take down content and it was all pretty small anyway. And so we sort of went with American law and that's not the case anymore. That, you know, know, like 90% of internet users are outside America and in the past, the internet sort of ran on American rules by default and now it won't. And so now you have different regulators applying rules and you have sort of a sense of the lowest common denominator in the country. Company just sort of has to comply with whatever the toughest laws are. Now, you can kind of get exceptions to that. So we've had sort of several pieces of spectacularly misguided legislation in Australia. Kind of somewhat hilariously, Australia both has a rule that says you must take down any harmful content within, I think, an hour. And they also have a rule, they're just proposing a draft rule that says any changes in your algorithm, you must give 28 days notice. Well, you can't really have both of those. I saw you tweeting about that. (laughs) Yeah, this is just incompetence. This is not disagreement. This is you really haven't thought about how this is going to work. And so that, you know, you have issues at the margins, particularly in in sort of relatively small countries, it's possible for Google to just say, well, we just won't have news in that country then. But in general, you know, if you have kind of content moderation laws in Europe, then you kind of have to obey them and you kind of have to build the infrastructure to obey those everywhere. So there's a kind of regulation and kind of inter-country regulation question that gets quite complicated. I think the second thing is, sort of TikTok specifically and it kind of expresses some of these issues and brings out some new ones which is as I said for 25 years the rule the internet ran on American rules and actually the big things that teenagers used were American 
And so you could invite, you could summon Mark Zuckerberg to Washington and shout at him. And TikTok obviously is not American. So there's a sort of a moment of shock that the rest of the world has spent the last 25 years dealing with. But for Americans, it's kind of the first time they've realized this, that, oh, my God, people are using this thing and it's not American. And like the data is leaving our country. And these are foreigners and they don't think about this stuff in the same way as us. And so I think that's the first piece to it. I think there is a small piece of this is the American-Chinese trade war in that American social media companies are basically not allowed to operate in China. Why should Chinese want to be allowed to operate in America? Now, you had sort of Kai-Fu Lee said, well, yes, but that's not true because this is there are Chinese laws that those companies have just decided they don't want to obey. But I think that's about half true or maybe a third true. It's also that there are rules in China that aren't written down and you have to, as the phrase will go, work towards the government. It's also that some of those laws are things that you just can't obey. You have to hand over all of your source code and your data. But I think there is a kernel of a point there in that the way the US government has gone about it is kind of spectacularly inept and in kind of violation of basically every principle of good government in that no one actually knows what the rule... Like, you can't do business with Tencent. Like, what does that mean? Because it's not just TikTok, it's also Tencent. You can't do business with Tencent. Like, what does that mean? So I can't run advertising in China. Really? I'm not allowed to have a WeChat on my phone. So there's a bunch of sort of really vague hand-wavy stuff in there that's very hard to interpret and hard to enforce and hard to understand how you would comply with it. As I said, if you're going to do this kind of stuff, you need to have rules. And I think there's a sort of a deeper point, which is you don't just need to follow due process for WeChat and for TikTok. You need to actually have like a repeatable law because it's not just going to be WeChat and Tencent. And it may even not just be Chinese anyway. It may the next one may be like Vietnamese or it may be Brazilian or it may be Turkish. I mean, it's less likely because obviously those software ecosystems are less well-developed than, than China. But it's perfectly possible. I mean, there was a huge hit game a couple of years ago called Flappy Bird, which was one guy in Vietnam. And, you know, the sort of generalized point is you can't just assume all the cool stuff will come from Silicon Valley anymore or from California anymore. Um, and so you need to think about, in particular, privacy laws, which America doesn't really have. And so you see California bringing out privacy laws, which is sort of, California being America's regulator by default. You have GDPR, which, again, to my point about, you know, incompetent regulation was sort of, in some senses, successful, in many senses, very unsuccessful. They put a poorly conceived piece of legislation. But GDPR applies to everybody. You know, if you're an American company with users in Europe, you have to follow GDPR, and you kind of have to follow it for your American users as well. Although, um, just for the sort of operational reasons. And so I think that's sort of the deeper point about TikTok is you, America is kind of going to have to have laws that apply in a kind of consistent, repeatable way, rather than running on the basis that we'll just summon that company to Congress and shout at them if they do something wrong. I mean, coming going back to my point about regulation, this is something I've been thinking about, in particular, I've been talking to a lot of UK and European regulators recently. The US regulation, so there are some industries that actually do have specific regulation. So like financial services and cars and aircraft, there's an actual regulator. But those are sort of industry-specific regulators. But for everything else, it tends to run on, have you broken this law that was written 50 or 75 or 100 years ago. So when you come to antitrust, there's the Sherman Antitrust Act, it was written in 1890. And the determination is, are you breaking that law? And then the sort of philosophical approach is that low consumer prices are an absolute good. And that's what we need to aim for. And nothing else matters. And so and as long as the result is lower prices for consumers, that's not bad, even if it's a monopoly. Whereas the UK in the EU approached is, number one, competition is an objective. If there's a monopoly and that's causing harm to consumers, even if they're not breaking the law, even if it would just be better for consumers if there was a choice, then we will insert competition. And we don't have to find that you broke this law written in 1890. We'll just insert competition. We will decide, like, you know, actually, it would be better for our society if there was more competition. So we will just do that. 
And so that's a sort of very alien attitude for Americans that, no, you have to have broken this law. No, 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 no. We'll just create a legal structure that says we're going to add more competition. The other thing that happens is is that American process here tends to be about, well, we'll have a court order and then you'll have to obey that. If the world has changed five years later, well, so what? There was a court order in you know, 1980, and that's what you have to follow. And maybe we'll change your court order. So for example, at the moment, the US is overturning a court order from, I think, the 1940s that broke up the studio system. So the studios and all the cinemas. And so they were using that in very obvious antitrust ways. And so they were forced to split off the cinemas. And because the world has changed, the DOJ is now saying, well, actually, let's break that one apart because it's kind of irrelevant now. But in principle, you have this kind of point in time. You broke the law, there's a court case, there's a remedy, you have to stop doing that thing. Um, and you have to do this new thing. Whereas a lot of the rest of the world, you create a regulator that can write new rules all the time. And so you can have a regulator whose remit covers online advertising and search and harmful content. And they can just decide, well, OK, we're going to write some new rules this year. And we're not going to have to go to court and get a judge to find that you broke a law written in 1890. We're just going to write some new rules. Which I think makes more sense, right? For tech particularly in the industry that moves this quickly. And I think there's, you know, it sort of always entertains me because when I write about this, you know, when I write about the App Store, everyone links to it. And when I write and say, look, you don't understand, the EU is going to break apart search. No one in America pays any attention. But that's what's going to happen. And it's a very, as I said, it's a very alien approach to most Americans. But that kind of reflects the fact that this has become, you know, much more global. I mean, there's this old joke that war is how America, God teaches America geography. And now it will be, you know, regulation is how America on geography. And there was a joke in, um, I think, Punch magazine in like 1900, where somebody's reading the newspaper and says, my God, it appears the Americans have taken umbrage. And somebody else <laughs> says, where's that? Then do you think a potential solution could be some kind of like an international regulatory body for tech that just addresses all these things that are, you know, transnational? Would, would that potentially work? Not really, no. I mean, I think the, the herding of bureaucrats and politicians involved required to do that would be very difficult. I think it would inherently create something that was incredibly slow moving. And it would also run into all sorts of geopolitical issues. I mean, we have, there's two sort of fundamental geopolitical changes in the last five years. And one of them is what happened in America. And the other is a shift in government attitudes in China. And those go kind of hand in hand. And, you know, I don't think anyone in the Chinese government would disagree in saying that China's attitude to foreign policy now is different to its attitude to foreign policy five years ago. And that shifts how people think about an international institution with Chinese involvement. And another topic that has been heavily debated or been talked about on Twitter as well, uh, you have tweeted about this, is um, recently Epic Games, which is the parent company for the game Fortnite, attempted to bypass the payment system for both Apple and uh, Google stores. And then the result was that the Fortnite app was dropped by both the Play Store and the App Store. And then Epic then filed lawsuits against both Apple and Google, you know, for their payment monopolies. What are your thoughts on this situation? Do you think you know epic is leveraging the current uh, scrutiny of these big tech firms and forcing apple and google to collect uh, less quote-unquote tax from the developers so this is a long there are many things that one can say about this and the interesting thing about epic we've been arguing about the app store since 2008 and we've been arguing about apple's payment rules since they brought them in in 2011 and nothing has really changed in those arguments the interesting thing about epic is that they're in a much, much weaker position than, say, Spotify. 
because Spotify can't pay 30%. And Spotify, ever since really it launched, has been in this weird, very unsatisfactory situation where it can be on the store, but it can't ask for payment, but you can log in, but it can't tell you that you can log in, which is not really very good for anyone. And meanwhile, Spotify does actually have a product that's directly competitive with an Apple and Google product. So there's a clearly an antitrust story. There's no user benefit here at all. There's a real structural reason why they can't do what Apple wants. Epic just doesn't want to pay 30%. You know, it's no different to Procter & Gamble saying, we don't want to pay Walmart that, we want to pay Walmart this. So it's a straightforward commercial fight on one level. However, what's also going on here is there's a sort of right back to like the 70s, for as long as we've had personal computers before either of us were born, there's been this sort of religious schism within technology between people who think that you should be free to do whatever you want on your computer and people who say, no, we should make computers that are as easy and safe as possible for as many people as possible. And that's a trade-off. The people in the first group tend not to understand that it's a trade-off, but it is. You know, if you have a switch that can break your computer, then people will press it. You know, if there is a way that you can break your computer, then it will get done. And, you know, never mind the 70s. You know, if you think to what, back to what sort of Windows computers were like and Mac computers were like in the, in the 90s, computers silted up and computers broke. And you can install a piece of software that will break your computer, even if the developer didn't plan to do that. It can break your computer or slow it down or screw stuff up. And you have a real kind of tragedy of the commons problem in that every individual developer says, no, no, I'm just trying to make my software work better. But yeah, but you're screwing it up for everyone else. And so we've had this kind of continuous progression since the 70s of more abstraction, less access to the lower level, and the consequence being a computer that's less likely to break, a computer that a normal user can't break, a computer that's easier for normal people to use. Now, with the iPhone, we got the major step forward in this, you know, kind of another generational step forward with this. And I think everyone sort of understands that the iPhone is a generational change in computing. I think people don't necessarily understand that that came in two parts. One of them is a multi-touch interface, but the other one is a software model. And I think there's a certain part of person in technology, and I think some of these people work at Epic, that thinks that the software model, it doesn't really have anything to do with why smartphones were successful. It's just this stupid Apple thing that Apple did that you could get rid of and it would be fine. Whereas in fact, the software model is a crucial part of why smartphones are so successful and particularly a crucial part of why there's so much software on smartphones. Because what Apple did was they said, number one, any piece of software you install is 100% safe. It can't break your computer. It can't spy on you. It can't get stuck somewhere inside and you'll never get rid of it. It can't sit in the background and spy on your web browser and steal your bank details. It can't pop up ads. Software is safe. And so that Vietnamese guy who wrote Flappy Bird, he could put the app on the store and you could install it. Anyone else could install it and they could know it was completely safe. Then in parallel to this, they also the App Store. And again, there's a sort of technical user that says what was wrong with installing software. And the answer is normal people had 15 copies of the installer sitting in their download folder wondering what to do next. And installing software was hard. And a get button was a much better way of doing that. And the third thing is the payment system, which means I can pay that Vietnamese guy. And I don't have to think, why am I giving some Vietnamese person I've never heard of a credit card? Is that a good idea? And again, and so what all of this did, so you get trusted software, you get an easy install process, and you get trusted payment. And what this does, which I think is a sort of deeply disingenuous sort of part of the Epic lawsuit, what this does is it creates a level playing field. Because you could trust Adobe or Microsoft not to break your computer, more or less. You could trust EA or Epic not to break your computer and not to steal your credit card. But you couldn't trust the random guy in Vietnam who's made this game that everyone wants. You know, yes, in, you know, I'm not saying that he was dishonest, but you, like, you couldn't trust a random developer. 
And so what the App Store did was it leveled the playing field. And so now everybody competes on equal terms. And this results in this explosion in software development. The sort of two problems with that, however, the first of them is it means that Apple has to do a good job of deciding what's safe. And the second is that Apple decided part of that was you have to use our payment system. And paying 30%, so 2008 seemed quite like quite a good deal because like that was sort of the market rate. Today, it doesn't feel like a good rate. When they launched it, they said that it was going to, that the app store, it was, just gonna, was going to be break even. It was just paying for running the app store. But it was 10 to $15 billion last year, depending on what your presumptions are. And meanwhile, the way that Apple runs that store is all too often sort of capricious and arbitrary and inconsistent and frankly, kind of inept. Like every developer has an awful lot of horror stories of like just dumb decisions, not like decisions you disagree with, or it's just actually just bad decisions. And just saying, well, why are they saying we can do that and they can't? They can do that, but we can't because it was a different person on a different day reviewing the store. And Epic sort of combines a bunch of these. As I said, they're not in the Spotify category. There's no reason why they can't pay. And they don't compete with Apple. They just don't want to pay 30%. But what they've come out and said, which kind of gets me to this broader point of this debate we've had going back to the 70s, is it's not just we don't want to pay 30%, we want to pay 5%, is we think there shouldn't be any app stores. Or we think there should be as many app stores as you want. And you should be free to do whatever you want. And you could install any software you like onto your device and it should do whatever you want it to do. And that is to go back to the Windows software model of the 90s. It's to abandon the software model that's responsible for the success of software on the smartphone and that's created a level playing field for hundreds of thousands of developers. And so I think Apple does a bad job of running the store and I think Apple will have to rechange their payment terms radically and the EU will make them. Like it's not just, you know, I think Apple's lawsuit is really weak, but the EU is looking at Spotify and is just going to take a hatchet to the App Store rules. And I don't think Apple has quite worked that out yet. And so the rules are going to change. But the store model itself of like, you know, the software is trusted and sandboxed and can't break your computer. I think getting rid of that would be extremely bad for consumers and indeed for developers. Why isn't that when I use, say, WeChat or Alipay or, you know, Taobao and I, and I you, know, you know, use their payment system or use the app to pay or purchase within all these apps, which I did download from the App Store, the Apple App Store. I'm not paying through the Apple system, though. So, OK, so there's two different things going on here. So there's a simple answer and a slightly more subtle answer. The simple answer is you only have to pay for digital goods consumed on the store. So Amazon isn't paying Apple anything except for the Kindle, which is a separate point. But if you buy, you know, buy books on Amazon, buy stuff on Amazon, you don't pay. If you buy stuff in, if you order a a car on Uber, Uber isn't paying them anything. If you buy a flight in an airlines app, you're not paying anything. So like 90% of the apps aren't paying anything. The rule is only if you're buying stuff in the store to be consumed in the store, then you should pay. And so that only applies to a kind of a relative, very small proportion of what's actually going on on the store. So as I said, Amazon doesn't, isn't paying, Everline isn't paying, you know, most, you know, first dib, if I buy, you know, if I buy a $10,000 piece of furniture in the first dibs app on my iPhone, they don't pay. There's a fuzzy gray area around things like Netflix which is where you get to this point where you can pay on the device or pay off the device. And this is what catches Spotify, because clearly the Spotify UX is mobile only, really, and you should be able to sign up in the app. And you can't, but that's not good. And so that's one answer to your question, which is it only applies to stuff in, in that's being done in the app on the phone. The other answer is which, and so there's lots of third-party payment apps, so like I can pay for something with Square on my phone. The other answer is that one of Apple's rules is you can't make apps within your app. You can't have an app that has 50 different games in it 
You can't have an app that has 200 different pieces of software inside it. Those need to be separate apps. And of course, WeChat is an exception to that. And that's an exception to the level playing field, which Apple did for, you know, very obvious pragmatic reasons. But they then turned around and told Facebook, Facebook wanted to launch an app, wanted to launch a games app that had 50 or 100 or 200 HTML games inside. And Apple said, no, we're not letting it on the store. And there's clearly a sort of, well, we didn't have a choice with WeChat, but we do have a choice with you kind of a narrative going on there. But I mean, they could potentially use another third medium, like you, you instead of purchasing something directly to be used in the store, you buy something, a physical good or, or some kind of card or, you know, and then you redeem that into the store. Like there should be ways around, you know. So I think there's a, if you kind of go back to 2011, I think the genesis of this was people are, you know, the English phrase taking the piss. You know, clearly Flappy Bird should use our payment and not ask for a credit card. I think there's a very obvious logic for that that says, you know, I don't want my son to show me this cool app that I've never heard of and it asks for a credit card. It should use the payment system. Clearly, Amazon should not be using the payment system. But then when they launch it, then, I mean, I remember it launched and I said, what about Bloomberg? Bloomberg is $1,800 a month and they've got an iPhone app and an iPad app. So they should they be paying 30%? And you could imagine like Bloomberg rang up Apple and said, hang on guys. And Apple were like, oh yeah, we didn't think of that. I'm almost literally sure that's what happened. And then you get this whole gray explosion of gray areas. And you see this, there was this email that I put in the, the essay that I published from between Phil Schiller, Eddie Q and Steve Jobs saying that they're like, we can make this rule for books and then there's going to be like this whole gray area. And Steve said, tough. I think there's a, you could kind of go up one level here and it's again back to my sort of point about going back to the 70s, that there's always been a range of views here on how a computer should work. And Apple has always been very opinionated about how it should work. That we're not going to give you choices. We're going to say, no, we think this is the right way of doing it. We're not going to give, you know, a non-technical user a choice of 18 different ways that it could work or five different ways that it could work. We're going to give you a way, the right way that we think is the right way. And you can buy a Windows PC. You could buy use Linux. You could buy anything else. But that was kind of okay. It was okay that Apple said, well, we're selling your opinion. And the problem is, and when they launched the App Store in 2008, there were only like 10 million iPhones on Earth. So again, it was, that was not a problem, you know, from an antitrust perspective. Like, what, what the hell are you talking about? They've got 10 million iPhones. Even when they changed the payment terms, in 2011, there were, I think, about 150, 160 million iOS devices on Earth, including iPads and iPod Touches. So they had like 10% of the US market because, you know, there were not, all of those, not all of those devices were in the US. So they had 10% of American phones were iPhones. So even then, it was fine for them to say, no, this is the only way you can do it. The trouble is now they've got over 50% of the US market and they've got probably 80% of American teenagers. And at that point, having an opinion that says, no, this is the only way you're allowed to do business on our platform becomes kind of a different conversation. And I don't think they've quite understood that, you know, having an opinion that says you can do this way or you can go away is fine when there's 50 million Macs on Earth. It's not fine when there's a billion iPhones on Earth. Like you get different rules. Understood. Now let's shift our conversation a little bit to talk about COVID-19 and the decoupling of US, China, India, and just everywhere. First of all, you know, the Chinese market is many times larger than the US now for the number of, you know, users on the internet, etc. And the Indian 
market is teaming up with U.S. companies to move their supply chain out from China to India with, for example, Apple. Um, do you think the Chinese and uh, Indian internet size, once it outsizes as it already outsizes the U.S. market, that uh, U.S. is no longer going to be the center of innovation and uh, technological growth in the next few decades? So I think there's a very long term sort of macro story here that says that until about sort of 1700, the biggest, richest countries and the, the richest economies and most powerful economies on earth were the places that were the biggest country with the most people and the most agricultural surplus, which meant basically the Mughal Empire in India and the whichever empire it was at the time in China. Was that the Qing by then? I forget. Which, who, when was the conquest? Whichever, say 1500. Yeah, then it was, so it's easier to remember. So I think there's a very long-term view here, you can say, which is that until about sort of 15 or 1600, the richest and most powerful countries on earth were the countries that had the biggest population and the biggest agricultural surplus and just the biggest place. And so that meant, you know, 15, 16, 1700, it meant the Mughal Empire in, in, in India, and it meant China. And then the Industrial Revolution happens. And suddenly, in sort of 1800, the Industrial Revolution happens, 1750, 1800. And suddenly you get 10 or 50 or 100 or 1000 times more economic production per person and per kind of acre of agricultural land. And so first Western Europe, and then the United States, get massively more military, economic, political power for per head of population than anyone else. So they become the global powers, the superpowers. And meanwhile, India and China, for a whole bunch of reasons, didn't industrialize or industrialize much less. And so cease to be those kind of the biggest play, the biggest powers on earth. And at a certain point in the next hundred years or so, that should sort of swing back the other way, because, you know, both, you know, India and China, and to a lesser extent, India are kind of building, you know, modern industrial economies and will build modern industrial economies in, you know, certainly China is in a way that Russia sort of always failed to do. And so all things being equal in sort of 2050, I think the model is that, you know, China, will, China's population won't have the same lead that it does now, but you know, China will still be sort of two or three times bigger in population than the US say and GDP per capita should have got to you know it's still only like 10% of the USA GDP per capita should have sort of caught up and so China should become you know the new a new global power sort of of a level with the USA if not bigger and as a European there's a sort of historical parallel here which is watching the growth of America in the 19th century and in sort of 1850 American GDP I mean it's difficult to do these kind of you can argue a lot about these comparisons but in sort of 1850 American GDP was about the same as the UK and by 1900, it was sort of two or three times. And so there's a period in which, you know, you have what were called the great powers, which was kind of Britain, France, Germany, Russia, America, Japan, Italy, wishing it was, but clearly not. And then we move to the sort of the superpower world, catalyzed by the Second World War of America and Russia. But in hindsight, we know that Russia was actually a much weaker power than America. Um, and they only had the army because you know, it's hard. And it's still a much weaker power, a very small economy. What I'm getting to in a slightly long-winded way is that we're going to move to a world in which China is an equal or bigger economy than the USA with, you know, a navy and an army and an air force and technology that is sort of roughly comparable in a way that Russian technology never really was either, in the same way that America did that to Europe between sort of 1850 and 1950. At the moment, the high-level, high-value technology isn't really in China still. You know, China has a lot of technology and it, it's the workshop of the world. But, you know, the the semiconductor, the primary semiconductor technology is not in China. And China is still sort of 20 years away from having that. You know, the software, most of the software is actually still not written in China. But I don't think there's any reason to assume that that won't change. 
I mean, if you think back to another historical parallel, you know, there's this great story that in the early 60s, the prime minister of Japan went to France and Charles de Gaulle said, who is this transistor salesman? And at that time, the idea that, you know, that time, Jap- Jap- Japanese industry was sort of cheap, low quality ripoffs. And that stopped being true in the sort of probably in the course of the 70s. And so then everybody panicked. And there are all these movies, American movies from the 80s panicking about Japan. But of course, ultimately, Japan is a smaller country than America. And if the Japanese GDP gets to the same level as America, well, it's, Japan is still half the size of America and China clearly is not half the size of America. And so I think one should just sort of presume that China will get as good as making, that you know, China will catch up in the same way that Japan caught up or South Korea caught up, but do it with double population. Now that becomes you know, a geopolitical conversation and a conversation about Chinese governance structures and everything else. Which is a very complicated conversation that we're not going to have Well, today. it's a conversation that I um, thought I'm not the expert. <laughs> I'm not, I, I have opinions, but I have no expert. <laughs> He's there. But, you know, I think the sort of the fundamental observation is, you know, that, you know, the shift in the geopolitical weight there is different to the shift in geopolitical weight that came with Japan. Yes, definitely. Do you think the future of the Internet is going to be, quote unquote, balkanized by, you know, China, India, Europe, US and then the rest of the world? We're certainly having that moment. I think there is a, a sort of an inevitability, as I sort of said earlier, to the fact that for the first 25 years, the internet ran on American rules, basically West Coast rules by default. A, because it was very hard to apply rules to the internet and American rules basically meant no rules. And so it was very hard to apply rules to the internet and it wasn't actually big enough for people to get very upset about it. And so you had very specific things like child abuse, which A, everyone can agree on mostly, and B, um, relatively straightforward, in some ways sort of straightforward. It's, e- it's easy to look at something and say that's child porn. Um, and it's easy for everyone to agree that this is bad. Um, so it's just a question of what do you do about it? I think for everything else, you know, we're moving to a world in which the EU will say, look, all of our people are using this stuff and the- we get to write rules about what happens in our country. And so will Britain, so is Australia, so will Singapore, so will China. Now, this is the geopolitical phrase for this is Westphalian principle, which goes back to the Treaty of Westphalia, which ended the Thirty Years' War in Germany, which basically said that each prince gets to decide what the religion is in their country. Instead of people going to war with each other to try and force them to be Protestant or force them to be Catholic, you get to decide and no one else can interfere with you. And that law kind of continues until 1945, when all the Nazis at Nuremberg say, but like, I was just doing what the government told me. And it was our government. And we decided, yeah, well, like maybe Westphalian principles need a second look. And so now we're in a situation where you have some disagreement between the US and the EU about how this stuff works, but much more disagreement between most people and China about how this stuff works. It's going to be, we're clearly going to have kind of complicated overlaps between the ES and the EU. I think what's going to get very interesting is when China starts saying, well, like, you need to apply our laws globally. And you already see this with the Hong Kong Security Act that says, you know, a non-Chinese citizen outside of China can break that law and be arrested if they go to Hong Kong. Which ironically, for those of us who learn the history of this stuff, is basically extraterritoriality, which is an interesting work for Chinese people. My next question is, Will the decoupling of supply chains between China and the U.S. change the way that the technology sector evolve in the next few decades? Is it going to be slowed down 
as a result, for example, or speed up. I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen in the next few decades. And the only thing one can say deterministically for the next few decades is look at population size and the economic growth. I think in supply chain, yes, clearly, we're moving to a model of multi-sided supply chains. And you can slightly overstate the China supply chain anyway, in, the, in, in sort of two ways. Clearly, like there's low cost production in Vietnam and Indonesia, and you know, not everything gets made in China. Secondly, as I sort of alluded to earlier, If you look at the value of the bomb, the bill of materials in an iPhone, actually like something over three quarters of it is coming from outside China. And it's only actually the relatively low value added stuff that's coming from China. So, you know, the the image sensors and the lenses and the batteries and the screen, all that stuff's actually coming from outside China. But clearly kind of the, the massive, you know, cluster of industrial manufacturing capability around Shenzhen is kind of difficult to, to do somewhere else. But clearly, yes. I mean, I think this is, and I, and I kind of repeat an earlier point, this is partly about China-America trade war. It's also about American companies and foreign companies, companies outside in China in general, looking at the Chinese government and saying, do I want to be dependent on the goodwill of the Chinese government, given the way that it has tended to, 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 to use its discretionary power in the last five years? Seems like a lot are dependent on the discretionary powers of the Chinese government these days? Yeah, I mean, I think the question is, is this a country that behaves in a way that makes you think it's a reliable partner or a trustworthy partner or a partner you want to build your business on or be, be, make your company dependent on? I mean, the irony is, I mean, there's a sort of an interesting case study here around Huawei, which we haven't talked about. But yeah, <laughs> there's several things here. One of them is clearly, of course, this is telling the Chinese state, oh my God, we need to make semiconductor capability like right now. That's right. But the other is that sort of the thing that sort of occurred to me is the USA government's ability to basically close down Huawei indirectly should make people think, okay, do I want the Chinese government to have that power to do that to me? You know, it makes the Chinese government and Chinese companies think, okay, do we want the American government to have this power? But it also sort of brings home the point that actually the Chinese government already had that power. And so if you were a third party country and you were thinking about building your cellular network on Huawei equipment and then you have your meeting with the Chinese ambassador shouting at you for 20 minutes because somebody from your city's opera house went to Taiwan and threatening you that they'll cut off access to Huawei equipment, you're like, well, if you're going to threaten me with access to that stuff, I'm probably I should just not buy it in the first place. And I think that's kind of part of the calculation that's going on now. You know, the use of this stuff as a threat actually makes people think it doesn't make people think, well, I'm going to do what you say. It makes people think, ah, I need to not be in a position where you can threaten me. But a lot of people don't have that choice. A lot of, um, you know, certain countries or, you know, in, in like Africa or whatnot, that they don't have that luxury or as much of a choice to kind of pick and choose. Yeah, I mean, I think Huawei's position in mobile phones, and yes, they're they're a large provider, actually, it's Techno that's got dominance in most of Africa. I'm less worried about mobile phones. I think mobile equipment, the Huawei market position is actually much more interesting because there's a sort of dominance. Well, there's two things here. I mean, like 30 years ago, there were like 20 people making cellular equipment and they all made the the equipment and the phones because you kind of needed to understand how the phones work to make the equipment and vice versa. And that all got disaggregated. So now none of the companies that were in the phone business 30 years ago make phones anymore. The only companies that are still around are Nokia and Ericsson and they don't make phones. And, you know, Motorola doesn't exist anymore. Novotel doesn't exist anymore. Lucent is part of, you know, Alcatel is part of Nokia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there was this whole consolidation. A, everybody got like Siemens got out of the business. Um, A lot of people got out. 
Sony got out of the phone. Sony does make phones, but no one knows. It's a secret. You have to go to the Sony building in Tokyo to buy one of their phones. All the equipment vendors got consolidated up, and so there's now really only three, well, four. So there's Samsung, which is, I think, in, I mean, it's not really my, my space, but Samsung up to a point, Nokia, Ericsson, and Huawei. And so, and Huawei, you know, I would hear when I would meet telecoms industry executives with telecom, the hard the equipment was both best and cheapest. And you can argue a lot about why it was best and why it was cheapest. And like where the money came from and where the technology, who, who had actually invented the technology. But if you're a phone company in Uganda and you want to deploy 4G equipment, like Huawei stuff is better and cheaper. That's right. You don't care about the... Exactly to your yeah. point. So what are you going to do? <laughs> but I think the, as I said, the sort of the shift in the behavior of the Chinese state in the last five years makes a lot of people reconsider that conversation. We have come to the end of the first part of my conversation with Benedict Evans. In the next part of our interview, we will chat about the forced experiments brought about by COVID-19 and what comes beyond the smartphone. See you in the next episode.